I'd like to welcome Dr. Mark Montebello. Mark is the medical manager at the Drug and Alcohol Service for Southeastern Sydney Local Health District. He's a fellow of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. He's a fellow of the Australasian chapter of addiction medicine. He's the clinical senior lecturer in the discipline of addiction medicine at the University of Sydney and a member of the Royal Astro Australasian College of Physicians Medicinal Cannabis Reference Group. He has also been an associate investigator on two randomised controlled trials of Sativex for the management of cannabis use disorder. I'd like you to please welcome Dr. Mark Montebello. Thanks for the introduction and thanks for the uh, invitation to speak. I was asked to do a presentation on the mental health effects of cannabis and uh, some of that's already been raised, so I'll whiz through those fairly quickly and I will then sort of progress on to um, some other interesting aspects of um, or how I see medicinal cannabinoids and how it's evolving in Australia. And I've called it my professional journey sort of over the last 15, 20 years, um, how my views have changed as more knowledge and more experiences in this field. Um, I've sort of been exposed to different teachers and different educators. So today I'm going to talk about my background in psychiatry training and what that taught me, and then talk, uh, look, a little, look a little bit at addiction medicine and see what that taught me, and finally what I think are the current issues in the um, landscape for medicinal cannabinoids in Australia. So let's start with psychiatry. It's already been touched on before that um, we've known a lot about the medicinal effects of cannabis for quite some time. But I remember in my psychiatry training um, that that was sort of kind of balanced even with the first description, descriptions of cannabis as medicine with maybe the harmful effects of cannabis. And you can see here Emperor Shen Nung, who was a physician, describing that if you take cannabis in excess, you get visions of devils and the like. We've already talked about reefer madness, so I'm not going to go into that. Um, but this is where we are today. We had a great lecture before by um, Justin about the uh, cannabinoids, so I'm going to talk maybe a little bit more simplistic, uh, simplistically um, and just the important parts that I think are relevant. Um, but really there are three types of cannabinoids. There's the endocannabinoids that we all have within our own brain and body, the phytocannabinoids that come from plants, and then synthetic cannabinoids that come from, um, from the lab. Um, I'll start off with what I learned in psychiatry, which was about this group, the endocannabinoids. So we've got actually, oops, we've actually got distributed through our brain and our body two types of cannabinoid receptors, the type 1 and type 2. They're very widely distributed and that's why you get widespread effects um, of um, the effects of cannabis and uh, that's where, the, where they're found throughout your brain and through your body. Um, the green is CB1, mainly in the central nervous system, the blue is CB2, widely found throughout the body, particularly the immune system. So we've got naturally occurring endocannabinoids that act on these receptors. Um, those receptors were probably not you know, there through evolution to, to get high or get stoned. They've probably got a lot of other functions that we, which we're just learning about. Um, and we've got naturally occurring um, chemicals, They're chemicals like 2-AG and anandamide that act on those um, receptors. Let's talk a bit about what's found in plants. And Justin has gone into a lot of this already, so I'm going to whiz through some of it fairly quickly. Um, Justin did mention that you know, a lot of people who use cannabis don't actually develop problems with um, cannabis, and I would agree. There's a lot of famous people who use cannabis, and actually they don't seem to develop too many problems. 
um, except maybe maybe not the last one. But his main main problem. Well, it, it is a good example because his main drug of choice wasn't cannabis. It was actually alcohol and cocaine. So we can't really include him. Um, but really, you know, cannabis is widespread. If it was so widespread, as Justin said, the rate of schizophrenia has hardly changed. Um, and uh, cannabis use has increased in many parts of the world. So why haven't we seen an increase in psychosis? Um, I got taught as a psychiatry registrar that there's lots of harms associated by cannabis use. Um, and I think... I can't quite see from here, but I think at the top we've got cannabis and acute risks like drug-induced psychosis, and right down on the bottom line, cannabis and schizophrenia, and I'll look into those a little bit more, but we got taught there's a whole lot of harms associated with cannabis. There's been lots of studies done trying to tease out um, you know, what, what's the link between cannabis and psychosis, and I think Justin said more research is needed. Actually, I think a lot of research has been done, and I'd like to see the research maybe been um, researched looking into other things. Um, but if we look at all these studies, it's a little bit weighted by a very large study by Sweden. The Sweden, Swedish are very obsessional and keep very good records. So they've got a study there of 50,000 plus conscripts into their military. And they looked at um, you know, those young men and their drug use um, and actually found it sort of doubled. If you used cannabis very heavily in a young age, it doubled your risk of psychosis. I'm not saying schizophrenia, I'm just saying psychosis but from any, any cause. We've got some studies also locally from Australia and New Zealand. They're all fairly comparable. But it's not just about cannabis, as Justin said. So there's other factors too. And we're going to call that individual vulnerability. And you know, people can use cannabis, and with or without that individual vulnerability will change your risk of developing psychosis. So what are some of those other factors? There's actually a whole bunch of genes that have been implicated, the age that you first start using cannabis, the amount you use. Um, childhood trauma is thought to be important and other vulnerabilities. Um, and also stuff about the cannabis itself. Um, so um, we'll talk a bit about that D9THC cannabidol ratio a little bit later on. And for any of you that work in mental health or drug and alcohol settings, uh, I think sometimes that you know, synthetics seem to cause a lot more harm and cause a lot more problems. Everyone's not in good. Um, so you know, not, not all cannabinoids are equal. The genes are really complex, and we sort of find one, and we think that's the answer, and if you've got that, if you've got that gene, that increases your risk. Uh, and then someone else does another study with the same gene, and they don't find that. And that's quite common with genes and a lot of mental health and drug and alcohol conditions. Um, years ago, the COMT gene, the COMP gene, was implicated. And you can actually buy a very cheap over the, um, uh, test for this over the internet. And uh, particularly in America, it became very popular, so lots of... Uh, families were worried that their young sons or daughters were using cannabis, went out and got their kids tested. And if they came up positive with the gene, maybe you could say, look, you know, maybe you shouldn't use cannabis. But what do you tell your kids if they don't have the gene? Is it OK to use? Um, and then a study came out a year later and sort of debunked that that gene was in, um, in alone, was, uh, that gene in isolation was important. It's actually a combination of genes. And we don't really understand um, how these all interact very well at all. The age that you first start using cannabis is very important. I think Justin even said this. The earlier you start using cannabis, um, the more likely you're going to develop problems. Um, and actually, um, this was a study done by Matthew Large, who's a local psychiatrist, uh, and he does lots of um, population-based studies and has done, he grouped a lot of studies done from all over the world and found the earlier you use, you know, your brain's not developed as much. It's not going to be so good if you're going to use cannabis recreationally. I talked about the conscript security already. Um, so, sorry, it's 45,000 um, Swedish army conscripts. 
And they found that also the more you use, um, the more likely you're going to develop psychosis. But you can see that you've got to use quite a lot in a, in a recreational way. This study's got some problems with it also, that at the time when it was done, there was also a lot of methamphetamine and amphetamine use, and that wasn't really factored in very well in the study. So um, it's, um, you've got to be a bit careful about drawing conclusions from this, and so that's why I included all the other studies um, that have been done in this field. And finally, really, it's an interaction between all these factors. It's not just about genes or the amount you use or how early you use, it's really about the combination of all of the above. And this, you know, if we don't understand each of these factors in isolation very well, well, we really don't understand all the factors together very well at all. Um, and the other thing is quite complicated in this story about cannabis and psychosis. Everyone kind of thinks that cannabis leads to psychosis, but there's a lot of evidence that actually it goes the other way too. So individuals that are vulnerable to developing psychosis are more likely to use cannabis in the first place. And they might do that because, you know, they might be falling behind in their school, um, they're a bit more, you know, not, maybe not so socially adept, they're more likely to be the naughty kids at the um, back of the playground trying cannabis at a younger age. And so it's actually quite complicated. It's not just a one-way relationship. And some of that relation, uh, some of that studies looking into this has actually been done in Australia, including the, um, the second study by Michael Payton there. Justin touched on this already, and I want you. My, my slide's much easier because I'm not, I'm not able to think nearly as um, uh, in such a complicated way that he does. So I, this is not to dumb it down for the audience. This is to dumb it down for me. Um, but really, he talked about THC, D9-THC and cannabidiol, and the balance between the two is really important. And as Simon Justin said, if you have a lot of a product that's really high in D9-THC, that is thought to increase your risk of mood disorders and psychosis. And cannabidiol is actually the opposite. Um, it actually protects, protects you. And the balance is really important, and we'll see in a minute that that balance has been changing in cannabis in Australia. There's actually been studies using cannabidiol as an antipsychotic. So we all think, you know, cannabis makes you psychotic, but actually one of the agents in cannabis um, actually can be used as an antipsychotic. Um, and there's ongoing research with cannabidiol um, looking at other psychiatric disorders, such as with ticks. Um, so, yeah, it's just an alluded, quite a comp complex plant. Now, I talked before about the balance between D9-THC and cannabidiol, and that balance is really important because if, it's, if you've got a product that's very high in D9-THC and no cannabidiol, you're going to really get... Um, an increase perhaps in the psychoactive effects, maybe some of the psychiatric complications. And the cannabis in Australia has been purposely grown to be more, you know, higher concentrations in D9-THC and lower in cannabidiol because it's what gets you stoned. And so if you're a drug developer and you're wanting to sell your product against other dealers on the market, if you've got a product that's actually going to get people more stoned than your competitors, you're going to get more business. So over time, the drug seizures, uh, from drug seizures, we can detect, um, we, we monitor, sorry, um, what happens, what's happening in the drug seizures. D9-THC is actually increasing and the cannabidiol has been bred out. So you often talk to people who use cannabis and they'll say actually, or older cannabis users, and they'll talk about, oh, I tried recently maybe my son or daughter's or some, you know, someone else's cannabis. And it's not like what I used 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Everyone's heard that before? And it isn't, because we know that the cannabidiol levels are actually um, you know, being bred out of the cannabis. And um, 
you know, it's interesting in places like in the Netherlands, if, where they've got legal cannabis and they've had it for a very long time, Dutch being very pragmatic, if you want to sell cannabis, they actually in, um, enforce the cannabis sellers to have a minimum level of cannabidiol of around 5%. And you can see from the slide there, actually, the cannabidiol in Australian cannabis is often 0 or 0 0.1, sometimes up to 0.5%, uh, very low levels. So we actually in Australia don't have great cannabis um, in, in terms of actually minimising mental health effects. So um, if you've actually got schizophrenia, different story. Um, cannabis isn't good news and it will exacerbate your schizophrenia. But we don't understand all the relationships with that very well either. Um, there's some stuff about maybe poor motivation might be in play here or people actually uh, who use cannabis um, you know, might be actually not be able to cognitively solve problems so well, don't remember to take their medication so well, might not be able to engage in psychological treatments as well. So there's a lot of, a lot of um, factors um, maybe, you know, to explain why people with schizophrenia, schizophrenia using cannabis have a worse prognosis. Um, I'm going to whiz through very quickly some of the other mental health effects. Then, um, again, Justin um, stole a lot of my thunder. And you alluded to, uh, or maybe it was Lucy, alluded to the, um, this wonderful re review by the National Academy of Sciences. And uh, it actually um, um, spells out sort of um, not only the effects of medicinal cannabinoids, but also the effects of cannabis very clearly. And um, I recommend that you all read it. So I'm going to whiz through these fairly quickly. But there's um, some evidence that cannabis does exacerbate mood disorders, um, intoxication, in, even chronic use and a chronic intoxication cause an amotivational syndrome. We've touched on cognitive function and we touched on adolescent cannabis use. So illicit cannabis use, the younger you use it, the more problems that you develop. And there's also medical problems. Um, and this is really hard to differentiate from cigarette smoking, but you can get all these problems if you are smoking cannabis. Um, and that's why I think other, other means of taking cannabis, um, such as um, vaporizer methods would be preferred. So what did I learn in, as my, during my time in addiction medicine training? Uh, as Justin alluded to, cannabis dependence does exist, um, but it does take many years to develop. It does tend to happen with people who start at an earlier age or have other risk factors that you can see there. And, um, but, you know, psychological dependence is much more common. People often say, I need cannabis to help me to get to sleep. But, you know, they, when they don't get it, most of the time, most of them do get to sleep. Um, in DSM-5, the most recent version, cannabis actually um, withdrawal got recognised. And that was quite good. For years, we've been studying cannabis withdrawal, and it was never really in DSM-5. So it was kind of nice to have it there. Um, if someone is cannabis dependent, what I got taught is in my addiction medicine training, what can we do? Uh, there's a range of psychological treatments, and I'll talk about those a bit more in a minute. Very little evidence for medications, and you should treat the comorbidities. What are some of the uh, psychosocial treatments? It's really about CBT, but you can see there that the actual treatment response rate is still fairly low. But I still think, you know, when people are really so unwell that they're dependent on cannabis, medication alone is not going to fix that. They need actually psychosocial treatments to help um, manage um, to get off that uh, cannabis as a drug and to um, you know, get their life back in order. So this is kind of a summary of, in one slide of my, um, the research I've been involved with, with cannabis um, treatments, pharmacological treatments for cannabis use disorders, at least for the, uh, the first, second and third. 
Um, for those who are familiar with opioids, I've sort of given an opioid example um, to kind of make it easy to understand. Symptomatic relief treatment, this is where you're using a non-specific treatment. Uh, so if you were treating opioid dependence, that was the days when we used to use Buscapan and Lamodon, a whole cocktail of medications to try to reduce symptoms of, say, opioid withdrawal. And we did studies with metazapine, helps reduce, say, withdrawal symptoms like sleep disturbance. Um, there's treatments like in the opioid world like naltrexone. You can block opioid receptors. And we did a study with a medication called Ramonabant. So it blocks cannabis receptors. Can it, if, you, um, if you smoke cannabis, you get the munchies. So Ramonabant was developed as an anti-munchies tablet. And it was found to people would lose weight. They actually were more likely to give up smoking. Their HDL, LDL cholesterol improved. It sounded like a wonder drug. It got withdrawn worldwide because it tripled the rate of suicide. You know, you smoke pot, most people at low doses smoking pot actually get, feel relaxed. Uh, you block those receptors throughout your brain, you get agitated, and some people actually suicided. There's no um, partial agonists that's come to market, so that's why we've not been able to um, work in that space. And finally, I want to talk about um, the Sativex study. So Sativex is a 50% 50, 50 combination of um, D9-THC and cannabidiol. We've done two studies, an inpatient study and an outpatient study for patients who are dependent on cannabis. And if you look at this, for those who are familiar with cannabis withdrawal, maybe quite quickly you'll realise a really basic um, flaw with our design of our trial. Uh, we, we admitted people to hospital for nine days and we only give them medication for five days. Most people in cannabis withdrawal, they're not out of their withdrawal by day five. Often they're in withdrawal for a couple of more weeks. So we actually, what we found very in a, in a nutshell was uh, it was a randomised control trial. People, this medication did withdraw, uh, reduce withdrawal symptoms. It was a bit like using NRT, nicotine replacement therapy for smokers. They got the Sativex, it's a spray. They used it up to four times a day. There's a couple of um, my colleagues in the room who probably know more about the difficulties in teaching people to use the spray, but once they got the hang of it, they um, got some relief from it. And um, it did reduce withdrawal symptoms. That's what that says. And uh, people on the um, placebo didn't get much relief and they walked out of hospital. But when we actually asked people, what did you think you're on, it was actually quite interesting. Everybody who was on um, Sativex um, said they were on Sativex. But everyone who was on placebo thought they were on Sativex. And this is quite, it's quite an interesting thing. We found that in the metazapine study and we found that in a lot of other cannabis treatments trials where people are given the placebo, but there's such a subjective effect with cannabis um, intoxication and withdrawal. If you, you get people to um, smoke cannabis and you, you know, maybe put the lights down low, play the right music, get them to maybe sit on a bean bag, put in some lava lamps in the corner, I'm trying to set the scene, they're gonna feel more, more intoxicated. And this is something that I've kind of, kind of later on when we talk about medicinal cannabinoids, I think the context is really important. Uh, even if we're using agents that might actually have a lot more D9-8-THC and they might actually have more psychoactive effects, if you're using it as medicine and you're not using it to get stoned, that subjective effects, it's really important. A lot of patients um, don't report the um, subjective effects. Or it could be that we just had a really great placebo. And we now, we just wrapped up an outpatient study. Most cannabis withdrawal um, treatment in Australia is not done in an inpatient setting. We've just done a study with 142 outpatients. So hopefully um, we'll have results for that soon. I'm going to whiz through exercise because that's another evolving treatment. And I'm going to just touch on the final part of my training as an addiction psychiatrist. 
uh, got taught that cannabis use is widespread, but most people who use it don't develop problems. There's a risk for individuals that do, and there's lots of reasons for why they do develop problems, and there's limited um, evidence for what we should do in terms of treatment. So, I then went off to work in a drug and alcohol service at the addiction psychiatrist, and um, got involved in the set of X studies, like I said, and got interested in sort of some of the other treatments out there. So we talked about um, cannabinoids derived from plants and also from the lab. Oh, sorry, there's some medications that come from the lab. These are synthetic cannabinoids, and particularly there's dronabinol and nabilone, not available in Australia. Sativex is actually um, TGA registered. The company's just not chosen to release it yet. Uh, and when they do, a rumour is they might be releasing it later this year. Um, it will be used for muscle spasticity. The problem is it's quite expensive. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure whether they're going to get um, PBS, a PBS listing or not. There's, um, the company, again, has been a bit coy about that. Um, Simon talked a lot about um, you know, some of the other um, uh, cannabinoid um, agents too. So I'm going to whiz through some of these slides. Uh, Simon put up a very, very similar slide. He had a nice slide which was a very balanced um, CBD and THC product. Um, I'm putting up ones that are a bit more skewed one way or the other. I like, I like these ones because they've got really catchy names, um, particularly this one, Canatonic. Um, but you know, you'd be wanting to use these products for different things. Um, and these are obviously not available um, yet in Australia. So where are we in Australia? Um, try to think of an easy way to summarise this. Lucy put up a lot of slides about some of the issues that we face and I thought cats might be able to answer this more easily for me. So this is the first cat, this is the public and the public is actually pretty excited about maybe, um, you know, to actually get these um, medicinal cannabinoids available. <laughs> Any idea who this cat might be? It's a very excited cat. It's actually businesses and I'll talk a bit more about where they're coming from. Anyone know who this cat might be? What's that? Researchers. Yeah, you could include researchers there. I'm going to include the colleges, the AMA, everyone who's taking a very academic approach, but also researchers. Can anyone guess what type of cat this is? Yeah, it's, it's caught up in red tape, red string. So it's mostly government, and I'll talk a little bit about my experiences with that in a moment. And then finally, this is meant to represent doctors, but I guess also, and yourselves as nurses. So let's talk about patients. So in the media, we, we've, we've seen already today lots of examples, and I won't bore you with more, but, you know, good examples where cannabis has been used as treatment. Um, and look, there, there's a lot of evidence out there um, you know, that's quite confusing for, for, for the public. Um, and for ourselves. This is from medical marijuana, so we could look at individual cases or we could go to a website like this and you can see, uh, I don't know how many, there's over 80, I think, in uh, you know, tr potential treatments for med medical marijuana. When we actually asked people what are they using it for, overwhelmingly it's used for pain, but also for psychiatric disorders. Um, and interestingly, um, not the, the rates for, um, for what they're using it for, there's not always the best evidence. Uh, in California, this is more recent data, you can see there are a lot of psychiatric conditions also, but pain and sleep disorders feature very highly. So the public, when they're asked, we heard one other survey this morning about, you know, should we actually make cannabis, may, um, make it available? 
Um, we've been including this in our national household surveys for quite some time. And every time we ask this question, the actual rates increase. So I think this question first got asked in 2007, and the, popula um, the popularity of uh, cannabis to be used as medicine was around 50%. It's now, in 2013 survey, gone to 69%. We did another survey in 2016, and we haven't got the results of that, um, that, that survey yet, but I would anticipate that it would be even higher. So this is a survey of 25,000 random Australians. Um, so I kind of like it. They go out and ask them about their own drug use, and then they ask them about a whole bunch of other questions related to, to, um, to drugs. Um, also increasingly, um, the Australian public is open to the idea about um, decriminalising cannabis for personal use, but it's still quite low compared to a lot of other countries in the world, so much lower compared to countries like Canada. Um, and increasingly, the Australian popula population are supportive that we shouldn't be using, I shouldn't treat cannabis users as criminals, um, but we should, um, you know, do minimal um, legal uh, interventions, things like a caution or a warning or no action at all. And if people have got a problem, that they get diverted into treatment. What about the business community? So already, this is a, um, a snapshot from a website that I, um, I took just a few days ago. This is from a company called Curis, and I um, recommend that you maybe go and look at some of the websites that are out there. They're raring to go. Um, they can see that money can be made, um, and they've got these quite happy um, websites out there. Um, how are they actually going to set it up? I don't really know. Um, we, we don't know because we're not really, it's not been sorted out yet. Um, this is one model. Um, this is what happens in Colorado. In Colorado, um, they've moved from uh, where cannabis was illicit to decriminalising it for medicinal reasons with a doctor's um, script to uh, where you can um, just get a card from a doctor and you can get it from a dispensary and it's not for a specific product to decriminalising it in a very short period of time. So they've gone quite quickly, which is quite different to where, where we're going quite slowly. Uh, what about our esteemed associations? Um, I'm just going to whistle through this fairly quickly, but the AMA, our, all, all the medical associations have been very, very cautious. Um, and I'll, let me try to find the AMA is saying uh, they prefer that, you know, smoking is probably not the best way of delivering it. We can find other ways. I think this, you know, they're, they're thinking vaping, that might be a better way, um, and that we should support clinical trials and that they have to be deemed safe and effective before we, you know, we release them to the market. And um, Lucy mentioned before some of the problems with that approach. Um, this is a, it's a public letter. It's, um, just before I get in trouble, you can actually go to the College of Physicians and you can download this letter. I did that a few days ago, if you know where to look for it. But the AMA, the uh, Cannabis Working Group that I sit on, we've been asked to write to a number of government submissions about how we feel about um, medicinal cannabis, and actually, you know, there's quite split opinion on the um, on our working group. But um, often, the the, the, the um, takeaway message is often what you can see there. Again, very similar to what the AMA is saying. Uh, the College of GPs are a little bit more open-minded. Um, then, but they're saying, look, we should make it more available, but it really medicinal cannabinoids should be a last resort and for specific categories of illness. Um, and really, after stringent legislative criteria, are also satisfied. 
My uh, other college, the College of Psychiatrists, um, are doing what psychiatrists often do and are still talking about it. And <laughs> watch this space, maybe this year, maybe next year. Um, yeah, it, it's quite interesting that, again, this is a committee, um, a working group that's kind of very split on like, the best way forward with this issue. I actually went to your um, association's website earlier in the week too, and this is your, I hope is the current position statement, you've not changed it the last three days, um, but um, much, um, you know, much more supportive in all fronts, and you know, saying that more trials should be, um, should, be, um, should be followed, but look at all these other very positive um, directions. So why are the medical colleges particularly so cautious? Like, what's that all about? And I think at the end of the day, you know, it's all about evidence. And, it, you know, the, the trouble is, is that um, we've, we've heard already some of the problems with maybe going down the pathway of double-blind randomised controlled trials. They take a very long time to set up. Um, and, you know, you've got to get large numbers to recruit. And it's, it's quite complex. It's quite expensive. So this was a, probably the best review that I could find up to 2015, where it was, was almost as a standard of a Cochrane review, highest level evidence. And you, know, you could see there was actually very few studies that they were going to include until this came along at the start of this year. And this is the cover of that, um, uh, the, the um, National Sciences um, review paper that I mentioned before. Um, and this is hundreds of pages and actually goes through the evidence in quite a lot of detail and actually rates the evidence. So it's not just looking at the highest level of evidence, but even lower levels of evidence and saying, well, look, we still should try to factor that in. And this is a very conservative American organisation. You know, they, they don't um, come to decisions lightly, um, but this is, they, they, they recognise this as an area where uh, the evidence has been lacking for lots of reasons, but we still need to try to be doing something. Just as an example, um, looking at cannabis as pain treatment and just some of the for and against arguments, and you can read those um, while I'm talking. Uh, look, there's very similar arguments with all the other uh, areas of using cannabis as medicine, but at the end of the day, um, you know, there's a lot of um, push and pull factors here, um, and we're kind of, in Australia at least, really at a bit of a standoff where really things aren't moving particularly forward, which brings me to government. And I don't really want to pick on anyone in government. So from the New South Wales Health website, there's actually, um, it's much, the new website's much clearer than the previous website. It actually, these are some of the snapshots of some of the programs that are available. And it actually looks quite optimistic about what's out there. Um, but we've already heard today that there's, all, there's some concerns, particularly from, or obviously from patients, that actually it's too much red tape. And actually um, you know, patients and even um, some doctors are putting themselves at risk by supplying cannabinoid products. So I decided to road test this, and I called the TGA, um, and I met, uh, spoke to a lovely pharmacist called Olivia, and she ex outlined the processes, and, and Lucy um, went through this already. It's really complicated, and just as I thought I got my head around it, she said, of course, then you need to go and speak to your New South Wales, you're in New South Wales, you need to speak to your local um, New South Wales Health, and they've got another set of rules and you know, more forms and the like. And she said, well, but fortunately, a lot of the things they ask in New South Wales, we're going to ask you here in Canberra. And it's sort of the, the double bureaucracy really struck me as being quite crazy. But there's good reasons for why that exists. 
um, cannabinoids, a bit like, like methadone and other prescribed opioids, are going to be coming under the Poisons um, uh, Act, and that's state legislation. So from a recent meeting that I was privy to, um, this was the this is from July, so the data might be a little bit different, but at that time the TGA told us um, that actually 25 doctors had negotiated all the red tape, and there were 79 pending applications at that time. I mean, compared to a year ago, I guess that's a step forward. Um, and but you know, it seems that it's fairly small numbers. Something's not working out right here. As I said, this is July, we're now in September, the numbers might be different, but I'd be a bit suspicious that they're not that different. So I'm gonna talk where I feel things are at the moment. I'm getting pulled between maybe there's a lot of hype, you know, maybe we should just take a deep breath and think about this more clearly. I also have colleagues, um, including one of my addiction medicine colleagues, Alex Wodak and, Alex Wodak and others, actually saying, no, no, we need to move forward. I look overseas, even far away places like New Zealand, and they seem to be progressing much quicker than us. And so I thought, what are some of the local barriers here? So we're doing a study at the moment. This is a study that myself and um, Nathan Jacob is one of my trainees is undertaking at the moment. We actually asked psychiatrists and psychiatric trainees, what did they think about medicinal cannabinoids? And what did they think were the harms, potential harms, potential benefits? And if we were to make medicinal cannabinoids available, what sort of training or what sort of systems would we need to put in place? And psychiatrists are fairly conservative. You know, I was expecting them all to say, cannabis equals psychosis, we shouldn't enter this space. You know, they, that's my experience on that working group trying to write the position statement. But actually, you know, we had over 100 responses. It's not a huge amount. There's many more people, obviously, in our college. So there might be a bit of bias about people responding to the survey, those who are actually more open-minded to prescribe cannabis. But they actually, on the whole, were saying, look, we should consider doing this with, lot, you know, with some controls and um, some protections and lots of education and lots of training. We, when people learned to do the methadone or buprenorphine prescribers course in New South Wales, we had one last Sunday. We send them off to a full day workshop. They've got to go do a clinical placement. They've got to go do an exam. Now, for those who don't know this, buprenorphine, out of all the opioids, is probably the safest. You know, it's actually much safer than OxyContin. You can't, buprenorphine in isolation, if you're opioid dependent, will not kill you, or you can overdose on all the other opioids. But you've got to go to a one-day workshop and all that other stuff to get prescribed, get, um, get authority to prescribe. But any doctor can prescribe OxyContin or Endone or all any, any of the other opioids. It, to me, it's really back to front. And, and I'm a bit worried that in that way we're going with medicinal cannabinoids, a bit like what Lucy is saying, is a bit back to front. You know, there's some, there's, we've got to be maybe a bit careful, but we, we, we've been so rigid, we've been so spooked by this. Um, and meanwhile, there's all that illicit cannabis is going on anyway. A bit like all, that, uh, all the uh, prescription opioids that are available, and I know there's a speaker later this afternoon who's gonna talk about that. And again, this is not just psychiatrists. Physicians were asked similar questions in a 2016 survey, and physicians are also a very conservative lot, and actually, they said very similar things. They said, look, we're a bit concerned. There's not a lot of evidence. We want to minimise harm, and, but we do want to do this. We just need training to do it. So I think there is some, um, there's some optimism. I should think there should be some optimism that doctors, at least, there's groups of doctors are really interested to be involved in um, this working in this space. Uh, there isn't 
a lot of um, great information in Australia, but there is a lot of information from overseas and there's some sites there. Finally, um, I've been really talking about this space down the bottom, about you know the model where you go to a doctor and it's prescribed and you go to the pharmacist and you fill the script and you need evidence to do that. Um, I've not really talked so much in these, these two areas because I'm not an expert in those areas. Um, but uh, in th th these sort of different models have been used in different jurisdictions around the world. And um, we're not even really making much progress, like I said, here. But um, I think there might be some anxiety that this might lead to this leads to this, um, in, amongst, particularly amongst some more conservative politicians. Just about finished. So where are we now? Actually, got, this was going to be my conclusion slide, and then I thought oh, you shouldn't really summarise a presentation with lots of questions. Um, I was thinking you know, we're, we're a bit of an impasse because it's going to take a long time maybe to do these clinical trials and get results. It's maybe going to take quite a bit of time for us to actually develop a cannabis industry that actually meets GMP process. I won't go into what that's about, but I think you know, that's, that's more likely to happen before this. Um, and you know, there's only Sativex at the moment that's on the TGA register, so that, that might change quite quickly. But doesn't you know, they might be on the register? When do they get released, and are they subsidised, and how long is that going to take? And the really critical question is: while we're waiting for all this is going on, what do patients do? All right. So in concluding, I think we've made some progress. I don't want to be too negative. Um, but really patients, public, business community, professional organisations, government, researchers and health professions, including nurses, we all need to come together to sort out um, where we're at a bit of an impasse. We've all got a different role in this and only by working together we're going to sort it out. Thank you.